Sexual assault in the military is a cancer. Today, Tuesday, June 4th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The Pentagon's top generals tell Congress that sexual assault is a cancer that threatens their forces. Lawmakers push the generals to take key prosecutions out of the chain of command. We think you should do what other countries around the world, who we fight with every day, that there are our allies, Israel, the U.K., Australia, Germany, they've taken the serious crimes out of the chain of command. We'll hear one survivor's experience. Also today, jail terms for foreign pro-democracy workers in Egypt. Charles Dunn is among 15 Americans who left Egypt and were sentenced in absentia. This is frankly the worst possible outcome, and we didn't fully expect it. Plus, how zookeepers in Prague rescued their animals from massive flooding. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. If I were to ask you what the biggest threat currently is to America's armed forces, what would you say? Extremists in Afghanistan? Iran's nuclear program? Well, if you'd been on Capitol Hill today, the display of military brass could lead you to only one conclusion. The biggest threat to our armed forces is an epidemic of sexual assaults. All of America's military leaders lined up today to testify about that before a Senate committee. One general said the epidemic is like a cancer that, if left untreated, could destroy the Pentagon's very fabric. But despite the severity of the problem, there's no agreement on how to stop it. The generals all spoke out against new legislation that would allow soldiers to report sexual assault without going through their commanders. Watching and listening today was former Navy Petty Officer Brian Lewis. He's one of the few male rape survivors in the military who's been willing to step forward and talk about his experience. What's it like for you, Brian, to be there sitting in these hearings and listening to lawmakers discuss something that hits so close to home for you? Actually, it's uh, pretty disappointing. Congress is beginning to step up to the plate, but the chain of command has had knowledge of this crisis going back probably as far as World War II. And I know now that I'm not alone, that there are at least 20,000 this year, 26,000 survivors joining me every year. And in this year alone, 14,000 of those survivors were men. We need to realize that any gender can be the victim. We need to realize that any gender can be the perpetrator. So, yeah, it's pretty heartbreaking. Yeah, so that fact is comforting, but overall very heartbreaking and frustrating for you. I mean, one thing that seemed to strike many senators today as odd was that U.S. military leaders had not looked into how many of America's allies have taken certain decisions about sexual assault prosecution outside of the chain of command. Let's listen to a clip uh, right now. This is New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand talking about the approach she and several other lawmakers are pursuing. We think you should do what other countries around the world, who we fight with every day, that there are our allies. They're side by side with us in combat. Israel, the UK, Australia, Germany. They've taken the serious crimes out of the chain of command for precisely this reason. Because the commander, while you are all so dedicated and determined, not all commanders are objective. 
So, Brian Lewis, your case goes back to 2000, rape by a superior non-commissioned officer aboard a Navy ship. If you could have reported that incident outside of your chain of command, how much of a difference would that have made? It would have made all the difference. We really need to take swift and decisive action instead of the incremental approaches that was suggested by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs today. And I think our lessons, as Senator Gillibrand alluded to, come from our allies who have implemented a system of taking this out of the chain of command and have seen phenomenal gains in reporting and seen phenomenal improvements in victim confidence. Did you consider reporting the incident at the time? If I would have had my way, I'd have gone ahead and uh, took the issue through NCIS and gone full bore. Uh, However, that was denied me by my commanding officer, which was absolutely his privilege at the time. Brian Lewis, can the commanding officer be cut out of such an important event in the life of of his or her unit? Wouldn't it cut into unit cohesion? Absolutely not. My perpetrator, uh, as I found out later, was a repeat perpetrator. Uh, He had at least one other victim on the command before me. So the failure of my commanding officer to do that to take action and get rid of that perpetrator more impacted the readiness of the unit than if I would have had an independent reporting option. So at the time when this happened to you in 2000, I mean, you can't kind of pivot left, you can't pivot right. Where did that leave you? That left me with no viable option to see my perpetrator brought to justice. That left me sitting on the beach with a personality disorder discharge. And it leaves me today with this feeling of heartache that it's been 10 years and we're just now getting attention on the issue. Former Navy Petty Officer, Third Class Brian Lewis. Mr. Lewis, we greatly appreciate your service and thank you for joining us today. All right. Thank you. News now about service of another kind, those who work for non-governmental organizations promoting grassroots democracy. A court in Egypt today ordered jail sentences for 43 pro-democracy workers, most of them foreigners. The group includes several Americans who had left Egypt and were sentenced in absentia. They were charged with operating illegally in the country. Secretary of State John Kerry slammed the ruling, saying it ran counter to Egypt's transition to democracy. Six staff members of the human rights group Freedom House were among those sentenced to jail. Their offices in Egypt were shut down in 2011 after the government raided non-governmental groups in Cairo. Charles Dunn is Freedom House's director of Middle East and North Africa programs. He himself was sentenced to five years today. Dunn says Freedom House had been operating in full compliance with Egyptian law, and he's shocked by the severity of the ruling. I think that the sentences are essentially not legitimate. We consider it a travesty of justice. We were expecting perhaps a mixed verdict in which some people would be fined. Others who attended the trial might get off or get a lighter sentence. But this was frankly the worst possible outcome, and we didn't fully expect it. Why do you think the sentences were so harsh, in your opinion? There's as many explanations as there are defendants. I think perhaps the judiciary was trying to send a political message and create a political problem for the government. And it's also possible that the judge in the case really believed in the severity of the charges. We're trying to figure this out right now with our uh, legal defense. Are you planning to appeal? We are planning to appeal. This just exactly how and when is exactly something that we're discussing with our uh, with our lawyers in Cairo. 
How many of those sentenced are actually living in Egypt and will serve time? I can only speak for the employees of uh, Freedom House, several of whom are elsewhere. I, for example, obviously am in uh, Washington. We have another employee who's in Amman. I can just say that they're all safe. Now, your colleague Nancy O'Kale, who is director of Egypt programs, uh, wrote on Twitter, I was sentenced to five years in prison in NGO trial for working on democracy and human rights while protesters, killers, were acquitted in Egypt. Can you explain that? Yes, I can. Uh, There has been virtually no security sector reform uh, since the revolution. And in fact, security sector abuses were one of the key things that started the revolution. We have had a number of cases in which people were tried for participating in protests and were convicted, and very few security employees, police or others, have been convicted, including in the famous Suez soccer riots case. So, Charles Dunn, I'm just curious, how does this verdict and sentence kind of square for you uh, against the context uh, of an Egypt that on the surface seems more democratic than it ever has? It's a very difficult circle to square. In our Freedom in the World ratings for last year, we bumped Egypt up to a partly free country precisely because they had a constitutional referendum and parliamentary elections. But the practices of the government themselves are increasingly anti-democratic. People can be jailed for insulting the president. The new law governing operations of NGOs are even more repressive than the current law, which was passed under Mubarak. So Egypt is being torn in two directions, and increasingly I fear it's going in the wrong one. Charles Dunn, Director of Middle East and North Africa Programs at Freedom House. Thanks for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you. One of the factors that fueled Egypt's revolution two years ago was police brutality. Egyptian police were the enforcers of the authoritarian Mubarak regime, and their violent treatment of anti-government demonstrators only stoked the revolution further. Since then, officers have retreated to their barracks and are rebuilding. The BBC's Shaima Khalil sent us this report on police efforts to repair their image. Let me hear your loud shouts, they sing. I have never feared death. Welcome to the start of the day for these police recruits inside the walls of this enormous compound on the outskirts of Cairo. The recruits are now going through an obstacle course. They have to crawl under barbed wire, jump through fire obstacles, and all the time they're shouted at by their trainers, basically just giving them the sense of urgency and danger of a real-life situation. I'm here with Colonel Sharif Zohair. He's head trainer here at the police academy. And Colonel, this is a very military-style kind of training. What kind of policemen are you trying to turn your students into? First of all, an officer that respects human rights, a combatant, fearless, highly trained and fit, but who also understands the people he has to deal with. Crime on the outside is different now. Before, it was just combat training, but now we've included cultural knowledge and especially a greater focus on human rights. Given its reputation for human rights violations, this is an interesting new emphasis for Egypt's police force, no doubt partly set for our benefit, but it's also a tacit recognition of the need to restore the credibility of an organization with a badly tarnished image. When you see these YouTube videos of policemen, you know, beating up protesters, what reaction do you get? Like I say, it depends on the situation. 
Khaled Hassan Abu Laila is a 21-year-old cadet who's about to graduate from the academy. Everyone can download it, upload a video on the YouTube. Everyone can say anything on the Facebook. Uh, it's not the truth. You were not there. So you can't judge anyone. That's how I see it. Now, of course, it was no accident that the revolution in 2011 started on January the 25th, National Police Day. Three days after that, the police forces withdrew from the streets and many police stations have been attacked. Two years on, there's still a great sense of anger at the police force because people feel that they have abandoned the streets, fueling a nationwide lack of personal and public security. After the January 25th revolution, the police was in a state of complete collapse. General Ahmed Gad Mansour is the new head of the police academy. We have to rebuild the personnel and the morale. We need to provide weaponry and cars across the whole of this vast country. And we have to do all this in an unstable and very poor economic and political environment. People are becoming increasingly impatient for the police to return. Security is the number one concern for Egyptians at the moment. But police abuse is continuing, and many of those who've suffered from it are deeply angry. Listen to Ayman Mahanna's story. He says he was an innocent bystander caught up in a demonstration outside a police station earlier this year, when he was locked up and abused for five days. Forty to fifty of us were crammed into a small room. They covered our heads with black plastic bags and we were tortured with electricity. They tied ropes around our necks and made us pretend to be dogs. And they would say, is the revolution useful to you now? Ayman is now in hiding and says he wants those responsible brought to justice. It's hard to see how people like him will ever trust the police again. These new recruits have a huge task ahead of them. It will take a lot of work to change the image of the police force in Egypt and reinstate security. It's one of the biggest challenges facing them and the government of the Muslim Brotherhood. The BBC Shaima Khalil reporting there from Cairo. I spoke with Shaima recently about her series of documentaries on how her native Egypt has fared since the revolution. You can hear our conversation at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. One of the key moments in many weddings, the lifting of the veil. For most brides, it's an exciting moment. For brides in Afghanistan, though, it's filled with anxiety. That's because it's often the moment when the groom sees his bride for the first time. And he has the option of refusing to marry the woman if he's displeased. So Afghan women go to great lengths to prepare. Reporter Gregory Warner tells us about one form of extreme preparation. Since she was 12, Ben Afshaw was sure that if not for the shape of her nose, she'd be beautiful. Mostly it was my sister that would mention it. When we got in an argument, she'd say, your nose is like the fist of a cat. Ben Afshaw is Hazara, the Asian-featured ethnic minority. In Afghanistan, the beauty standard is Persian or Indian. Straight noses are preferred. Girls have to be beautiful for marriage. They can't have noses that are too flat. 
As an Afghan woman, making a good marriage was pretty much her only option for having a decent life. When mothers of prospective suitors came to visit, they always scrutinized her nose. So the winter she turned 19, Ben Afshah collected $60 she'd saved, plus another 200 from her uncle, and took it all to a crumbling building in downtown Kabul. To a clinic, smelling faintly of formaldehyde. This is the new operation room? Yes. Dr. Hamkar is the lead surgeon of Afghanistan's first and only plastic surgery clinic. It's very primitive. It is very primitive. Primitive operation. The lamp is not... A big green lamp from the Soviet era illuminates the operating table, while a row of kitchen cabinets are jammed with gauze and scalpels. The TV stuck in the corner plays that most psychedelic of American cartoon shows, Teletubbies. This is something new. That's Amkar's assistant, Dr. Daoud. This year I, we see some patients who come to have, for example, uh, for mammoplasty. That it's means breast? Breast, uh, breast, yeah, to have a smaller breast. Daoud blames Afghan television. Afghans went from no TV under the Taliban to a flood of movies and even fashion and style shows today. It made the people to care about their physical condition about, uh, yeah. They say that uh, I sh- I'll show you a picture of, a, for example, actress, uh, Indian actress. They say, I don't know, look like this. But they think that it's possible to change their face at all. They want a whole new face. Yeah, because of some movies, I think, they've watched on TV, for example, American or Indian movies. They think that it's possible. Dawood says that most of the clients in his clinic don't come pursuing a fantasy. They just want a normal life. Uh, for example, girls who have some problem on their face, and this is the reason why they cannot get married. There was a girl, she had some hairs, you know, on her face, and she was engaged. Her uh, fancy didn't know about the beard that that girl had, you know. Her future husband had only ever seen her in a burqa. She said if he knows about it, she'll be divorced and uh, it will be something very bad for her. So she hawked her engagement ring, paid Daoud for the treatment, and by the time the burqa came off on her wedding day... When her husband lifted off her veil for the first time and he looked at her face, do you think he could tell that she'd had surgery? or he? No. You think he just thought, this is my... Beautiful wife. It's afternoon when Ben Afshah, the first girl we met, comes in for her checkup. She's wearing a colored headscarf and pink nail polish and proudly sports a cardboard cast over her nose. It's been nine days since her nose job. Actually, can you do me a favor? Can we look at the photo together? Is it okay? I asked Daoud to call up the before photo on the computer, the original nose that her sister called a cat's fist. And as they do it, I, I can't help but notice that Ben Afshah blushes. When the doctors do show her the photo of her old nose, you can hear her voice is diminished. Like she's lost her confidence. <laughs> There's that old debate about cosmetic surgery. Is it a form of self-expression, or is it social pressure? Of course, it's both. 
We get the freedom to change ourselves, and we use it to look like everybody else. In Afghanistan, too, they're mixed together. The freedom to uncover and the freedom to conceal. Gregory Warner's story was produced by Bending Borders with support from the Public Radio Exchange and the Open Society Foundations. It's part of PRX's Global Story Project. Now, from lifting the veil to removing the turban. If you're a kid playing soccer in Quebec and you wear a turban, the Quebec Soccer Federation wants you to take it off. No surprise that Quebec's community of Sikhs who wear the turban is up in arms and threatening legal action. Siddhartha Banerjee is a reporter with the Canadian Press in Montreal. Siddhartha, what's going on? Why the ban? Well, the ban was instituted last summer. And more, most recently, over the, over the weekend, the Quebec Soccer Federation held a meeting where they decided they were going to uphold this ban. They're basing the ban on player safety reasons, uh, security reasons. They're concerned that there might be cause for injury on the, on the pitch if players wearing turbans are allowed to play. Now, they don't have anything to back this up, no statistics, no evidence of, of any injuries anywhere else. But they're being steadfast with the rule. They want to keep the ban in place until FIFA um, rules specifically on the issue of turbans at some point. Right. So FIFA is the uh, governing soccer body. What is FIFA's stated position on wearing headwear of any kind? The issue of turbans doesn't come up in FIFA's rule number four, which governs uh, questions of what's acceptable in terms of uniforms, in terms of uh, equipment that can be used on the field. But the Quebec Soccer Federation is using this rule as a a reason to leave these kids uh, on the sidelines. Tell us how large the Sikh community is in Quebec and what's been their reaction. The Sikh community here is is, is a sizable community. They're centered largely in a few uh, communities sort of in the west end of Montreal. The community has said that this affects about roughly uh, between 100 and 200 young uh, boys. A lot of them want to be on the pitch and just basically have been left in this situation where families are, you know, basically being told, you know, you can decide either you can stick with, you know, your religious beliefs or you can play soccer. So as for the rest of Canada, are there any analogous headwear issues going on? Like are, are hijabs banned anywhere or... Are they allowed? Are the girls playing soccer in hijab? Uh, they are. Uh, FIFA introduced new rules for the hijab uh, last year. And stemming from that, the Canadian Soccer Association had asked that the rules be extended to boys who wear turbans or patkas or keskis. These are the, the different kinds of um, religious headgear that are worn by Sikh men and boys. Uh, apparently, all the other federations across the country have been okay with letting these guys play, except for in Quebec, where they want FIFA to rule on the issue before they let turban-wearing Sikhs on the field. It sounds like this ban on turbans in Quebec is very fluid. you think we've seen the last of this debate there? I doubt it. Uh, I know that the World Sikh Organization, which is an organization here that represents the Sikh community, has typically just tried to err on the side of dialogue in terms of trying to come to some sort of compromise. They have talked about potential legal action, it's possible that this could end up in the courts. I don't think we've heard the last of this story as yet. Siddhartha Banerjee, a reporter with the Canadian Press in Montreal. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on the world, a Turkish musician foreshadowed Turkey's unrest with a song called It's a Riot. The thing is that I, I wrote that song like months ago. It's not like everybody just let themselves out on the streets uh, out of nowhere, you know. If I write this song a year ago, then something something was coming. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, 
now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. In Hong Kong, you can do what people in other parts of China can't, and today they did. Tens of thousands gathered to mark the 24th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square crackdown in Beijing. June 4th, 1989, was the culmination of that crackdown. Chinese authorities sent soldiers and tanks to the square to clear out thousands of student pro-democracy demonstrators. Hundreds of people were killed. Since then, the Chinese government has gone to great lengths to prevent its people from remembering what happened. In the Internet age, that's even meant censoring computer search terms like Tiananmen or June 4th. This year, Chinese censors have banned an additional search phrase, Big Yellow Duck. Rachel Liu is editor at Tea Leaf Nation, an e-magazine that analyzes China's social media. She's in Hong Kong. Rachel, why can't Chinese users search for Big Yellow Duck today? Well, this year, the phrase uh, Big Yellow Duck is being connected to the June 4th incidents. Uh, if you remember the picture of a tank man that uh, stood in front of four tanks, sure. trying to stop these tanks. And that became a symbol of the Tiananmen incident. And this year, what happened is this, an Internet user photoshopped four big yellow ducks. The yeah, ones right, that, bathtub rubber ducks, exactly. Yes, that's right. They photoshopped four rubber ducks as tanks. And this photo immediately went viral on Chinese social media because the duck is very popular right now. It is an art installation. It's a 54-feet rubber duck that's sitting in Hong Kong Harbor right now. And uh, that has attracted attention for the past month. And uh, by superimposing these ducks, you know, with the tankman image, this Internet user has created an image that connects China's past, you know, 24 years ago to the crackdown and uh, uh, China's uh, younger generation who may not really know about Tiananmen Square. And now, you know, they see this image, they're probably going to ask questions about, you know, where this image came from. And what. So this photo uh, really brings a lot of these things together. It's, it's pretty fascinating. I'm just curious, that, that original image with the man in front of the four tanks, how readily available is that picture uh, on mainland China? I would say that picture would not be seen at all on mainland China. Any reference to it or, you know, any copies of that image will probably immediately be censored. So, you know, if you are a Chinese young person born in 1980s or even 1990s, you probably would not be familiar with that image, even though it's quite iconic around the world. What happens when you try to find information about Tiananmen? I mean, what, what are some of the words that are blocked? You know, obviously, Tiananmen is blocked at June 4th, uh, 6-4. Someone's uh, been trying to refer to it as uh, May 35th because the date June 4th is not supposed to exist in China. But that term is blocked. 8 times 8, that's another reference to 64. Wow, it's like the 13th floor in buildings. You know it's there, but they don't put the number on the elevator. That's amazing. How are people getting around the ban and having any discussions, not even open, but any discussions about Tiananmen online? Um, Actually, people have been having discussions about Tiananmen. Yesterday, I found a lot of opinion leaders who use social media with their real names, and they are 
pretty prominent professionals, you know, including film directors, business people, lawyers, you know, academics. They all talk about Kahneman in some way,、um, even though they know that their discussions will be deleted,、um, sometimes in a matter of minutes or in hours. Some people may say, you know, that year, that month, that day. So, if the mood、uh, in mainland China today is one of caution when talking about Chenmin, what's the mood in Hong Kong? This year, I don't know if you're aware, is a year of controversy. Basically, it's been kind of a split among the ranks of the potential protesters about you know how to treat history. So there's you know discussions of whether Hong Kong young people should care about what's going on in China at all. Uh, whether they should care about you know June Fourth and they should show up at the candlelight vigil, whether that's their concern at all, and I think that's a healthy discussion, and that may increase awareness about what's happening with June Fourth and what's happening with Hong Kong's、um, relationship with China. Rachel Liu, editor at the E Magazine Tea Leaf Nation, based in Hong Kong. Thanks for your time. Thank you. It was also 24 years ago today that Poland took a key step toward defeating communism. On this day in 1989, Poles voted in semi-free elections that had been negotiated between the communist government and the Solidarity Union movement. Citizens defiantly crossed off the names of communist candidates and handed Solidarity a historic victory. But ask young Polish citizens today about it, and their eyes are likely to glaze over. Reporter Alexa Dvorzin has our story. Nothing evokes the memory of communism's collapse in Eastern Europe like the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. But it was really that subversive vote in Poland five months earlier that set things in motion, and it all started right here in Gdańsk, the birthplace of the world's biggest trade union, led by Lech Wałęsa, a Nobel Peace laureate in the 80s and Poland's first post-communist president. Today he runs a pro-democracy think tank. We achieve a lot, but of course there is a price to be paid, and we have to pay it. It turns out one price to pay is the risk of apathy among Polish youth. Walking past the chic boutiques and cafes near Wałęsa's office, it's hard to imagine the famously empty store shelves that defined this country only a quarter century ago. And it's even harder for the younger generation born after the fall of communism. That's why an exhibit called "Roads to Freedom" is designed to keep the memory of solidarity's struggle alive. Inside a dark converted bunker, film montages of student arrests, shipyard strikes, and the declaration of martial law take a visitor right back to the 1970s and 80s. I was here already 20, maybe 40 times. Every time I'm touched. Jan Daniluk, a historian who was just five when the communist regime fell, is concerned about how Poland's communist past is being forgotten, revised, or hidden. Some people think that we have to do something right now, because there is some kind of fight about our memory, about our remembrance. Who's winning and who's losing? It's difficult to say, because there is lots of battlefields. Can we say so? In our policy of history or policy of memories, those battlefields are full of ghosts. In Daniluk's experience, it's easier to research World War II than the 1950s because many documents from the communist era have gone missing. At the University of Gdańsk, history professor Grzegorz Berend says Poland's national memory must be rehabilitated because the country's historical record was distorted and suppressed for so many years under communism. 
People who were fighting for freedom, for democracy, were forgotten for decades. And it is our main reason to name heroes and victims, first of all. But of course, there were also perpetrators who humiliated them, who tortured them and eventually murdered them. So these two aspects are closely connected. It's the task of the Institute of National Remembrance to set the record straight. Established by Parliament in 1998, it serves as custodian of Poland's traumatic history under Nazi and communist dictatorship. Among its tasks is the vetting of current political candidates to ensure transparency about any links to the communist regime. As the Institute's spokesman in Gdańsk, Jan Daneluk explains that people sometimes mistake this vetting for a witch hunt. Lots of journalists are calling me and saying, OK, you're hunting for witches again. I said, not at all. Read exactly what has been written. We don't judge anyone. We just publish information to make some things clear. And when some people are wise or calm, they will understand. Helping people understand is one thing. Getting them to care is an even taller order, especially among younger Poles like Elena, a resident of Gdańsk who has no doubt she was born at the right time. Everything is changing now. So we have to broaden our horizons for the future, for the present. And what does that mean concretely for you? Um, my job, of course, and being with friends, enjoying the time. Not like crying and all oh, what was in the past, because if you are happy, our children will be happy and Gdańsk and Poland will be happy. Jan Daniluk understands attitudes like Elena's, but he laments them too. History is not popular, especially modern history of Poland. I mean, it's not a history about spies, about some kind of crash, tragedy. It's not attractive at all. Why is it attractive to you? It is quite simple, because I'm curious. I want to develop. I want to see new, new things. That's the beauty in the job of historian, but not only it, just uh, the beauty of our times, that we are able to connect with other people from other continents to hear lots of voices. Jan Daniluk is well aware that the voices he appreciates, at a history conference, for instance, are a far cry from what most people in his generation want to hear, like the latest Western pop hits. He just hopes they realize that the comfortable lives they enjoy today have everything to do with what happened before they were born. For the world, this is Alexa Dvorsen in Gdańsk, Poland. For today's GeoQuiz, we're taking you up to Alaska. Alaska has been one of our 50 states since 1959, but before that, other nations had claims on the territory. Spain was one. You can hear some Spanish influence in some of Alaska's place names today, but it was a different nation that had a larger colonial presence there. And it was from that country that the United States purchased Alaska in 1867. Price tag, $7.2 million. So quick, who do we buy Alaska from? Well, the answer is Russia. Today, Russia's role in Alaska's history is kind of hard to see, except in Ninilchik. The tiny village is about 100 miles southwest of Anchorage. Here's the backstory. Not too long ago, 
In the summer of 1997, a Russian linguist named Mira Bergelson and her husband were in Alaska studying a local native dialect, and she got a strange email. A group of native Alaskans wanted her to come and check out their language, which they were desperately trying to save before the few remaining speakers passed away. Bergelson and her husband were intrigued, so they went to Ninilchik and met with some of the villagers, and they discovered the language was not a rare native dialect at all. It was Russian. More accurately, a version of Russian that had been frozen, you might say, up in the cold Alaska wilderness for nearly a century. These people were the descendants of when Alaska was part of Russian Empire. The Russians came to Alaska through trade. The way Russia was represented in that part of the world was like, you know, British Indian Company. The same way Russian Empire had so-called Russian American Company. It was organized officially in 1799, and Alaska was sold to the United States in 1867, so 68 years. During that time, Russian colonists had settled in the village of Ninilchik, and their descendants continued to speak Russian. But over time, their language evolved into a weird hybrid of native and Russian words, plus a few English ones, too. Bergelson says you might even recognize one of them. There is a Russian, a Russian word, I mean, a word made in Nenilchik. A normal way to refer to a kid. It is babychka. Can you hear something in it with your English? Yes. It is made from baby, but it is with Russian suffix. But the legacy of Alaska's Russian past goes beyond language, says Bergelson. These people are you know, normal Americans at the moment. They live in American houses. They lead the American lifestyle. But still, they have a, uh, something about their lives that defines them first as Native American group with its own heritage. But what is fantastic about it is that their Native American heritage is Russian in a way. They talk about makula, which means homebrew. Or they talk about... Samovar, of course, the Russian way to drink tea. In a way, they like to pass time as Russians. They like to sing songs. And that well-known Russian love of singing helped Bergelson ingratiate herself to the few Russian speakers left in Ninilchik. It had been a long time since many had spoken the language, plus some of them were in their 80s and 90s and were suspicious of Bergelson's motives. These people went to an American school, but they didn't know English at that time. They spoke Russian, and they had problems in that school. They were not allowed to speak Russian. When they spoke Russian, their mouth was washed with soap. They had very mixed memories. Their language was dear for them. It was their language. Some of them still spoke it in the families. But they were not very welcoming us. And um, at some point, there was a party organized where we were invited to meet with these people, and there was some, you know, music, singing. And at some point, my little daughters, they sang a song, a traditional Russian song, Slavne more Svishenny Baikal. Russians like to sing songs like that. You are not a prisoner. You are not escaping. You don't live in Siberia. You live comfortable in Moscow. But you like songs like that. And when my daughters sang it, I mean, some of them were crying. I saw tears in their eyes. And it changed the attitude kind of opened the doors. Next day we could go to, to talk to people who didn't want to talk to us before.
this was the song that touched the hearts of those Russian speakers from the village of Ninilchik in Alaska more than a decade ago. Bergelson says there are only a handful of Russian speakers still alive in Ninilchik today, but the younger generation has picked up the torch to try and revive the dialect. You're listening to The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Here in the U.S., it's tornado season, and that's been the big weather story here. Over in Europe, it's been the exceptionally heavy rains. Now massive floods are tearing through several countries in Central Europe. Parts of the Czech capital, Prague, are underwater. In fact, swans can be seen swimming past second-story windows. The floodwaters are now surging into neighboring Germany and Austria. Tens of thousands of people have been or are being evacuated, and so too are thousands of animals. The internationally famous Prague Zoo was badly hit by the floods. Mikhail Stachny is the zoo's spokesman. Uh, So the waters got too high for the zoo, Mikhail. How many animals are we talking about? Well, we can't say exactly how many of them we had to evacuate, but we have to say we had to evacuate animals, including big cats, Komodo dragon, Malayan tapirs. And so we can honestly say that it was about 1,000 animals. About 1,000 animals. Are they all okay uh, during this transfer? Most of them are safe and sound. We had one flamingo with broken leg, but most of them are safe and sound. And you said you moved a tiger and a lion? Yeah, we had to move all of our Malayan tigers, all of our Sumatran tigers, our Indian lion, Javan leopard, and all of big cats uh, which used to live in big cat house. And how do you actually do that? Do you have to sedate these ferocious creatures first? Yeah, most of these bigger creatures have to be sedated. But, for example, Malayan tapers, they they just needed some uh, smaller, smaller medications, and then we guided them to the crates. I mean, w- where do they even go? It's not like you've got an empty zoo redundantly lying around in case there are floods. Uh, well, no, we don't have an empty zoo, but fortunately we have enough space and keepers areas and stuff. So for a few days, we can house all of these animals in upper part of the zoo. So tell me about the zoo itself. Is it uh, completely underwater right now? What's it look like uh, with no animals there? Well, there basically are two parts of the zoo, the lower part of the zoo and the upper part of the zoo, which is perfectly safe. Uh, the lower part of the zoo is flooded more than 80 or 90 persons. Uh, you can see just roofs of uh, buildings and uh, it's really like flooded, not destroyed. We can't see any, any uh, things like that because, of course, there still is water. But it just has disappeared under the water. I'm just curious, when did you decide to actually evacuate the zoo and how much time did you have before that lower part of the zoo got inundated? We decided to move uh, the first species uh, on Sunday afternoon. And so we started and we have been working all night long. And then uh, as the water was rising, uh, we just had to continue. And Mikhail, I'm just thinking this zoo probably doesn't have a staff to undertake something like this. Did you have to get volunteers? Not yet. Our our staff, all of them are professionals and not just keepers were doing this kind of stuff. Uh, For example, I drive the car with monkeys. So basically everyone did his best job. And that's what what we really appreciate about all of our colleagues. All right. Mikhail Stockney, the spokesman for the Prague Zoo. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you.
You can see some great pictures from this heroic animal rescue at theworld.org. For our final story today, we return to one of the big stories of the past several days, the protests in Turkey. The protests started as a peaceful sit-in over government plans to demolish a park in Istanbul, but they've escalated into larger anti-government demonstrations after police started cracking down on the protesters. That's when the musician, who goes only by the name Baduk, felt compelled to take part. He hadn't expected to. Baduk's heard the comparisons to the Arab Spring uprisings and to the Occupy movement protests, but he thinks they don't quite fit the reality in Turkey. Well, the Occupy movement is is, is better in this situation because we're not like the other uh, Middle Eastern countries. Turkey is so much more in a democratic way, so much further uh, in that point. The the thing is, like, I, I can't see my prime minister to get what I need, you know. They got 50% votes from the people and that they act like they can do whatever they want. But democracy doesn't work that like that. You have to be more calm and you have to explain what you did for what, you know. You can't go like, I, I want to do this and you have to deal with it, you know. Do you feel that protesting right now is the only way to express your opinion in Turkey? Yeah, yeah. it was a passive protesting and waiting for somebody to see that, feel that something's going wrong. Okay, the economy is going well, okay. Uh, the the engine of Turkey is uh, going pretty well, mm. but we need something more uh, more of that. Uh, of course, as a musician and an artist, you have a, another way to express your, your opinions, Baduk. Um, and yeah. on this new album uh, that's just come out called Overload, you've got a track called It's a Riot. I mean, either you're a clairvoyant or the mood has been ripe in Turkey for a riot for months now. The thing is that I, I wrote that song like months ago. It's not like everybody just let themselves out on the streets uh, out of nowhere, you know? If I write this song a year ago, then something something was coming. Well, the, the song starts, come together, that's how we do. Don't ever look behind, all for the cause that we deserve to live. We'll take a listen to the tune just for a bit and then come back and ask you a couple yeah, more questions. Baduk, you've performed uh, in Turkey to huge crowds, over 30,000 people. I assume many of those coming out for your global dance music sets are, are young people. But I'm curious to know how you see Turkey today. Is there disunity between young and old, between traditional and modern? Well, the gap is closing from day to day. I, I saw 55-year-old year people dancing in my concerts. I saw two years old in YouTube dancing with my songs, <laughs> you know. Uh, so people, people are uh, understanding each other more. Do you see this as a defining moment for musicians and artists? The, the funny thing is, uh, I, I didn't see myself as a protest or as a politic musician or politic artist before, you know. I, what I do is dance music. <laughs> uh, I, want, I really want to make people dance. Uh, but the thing is that this riot made so much non-politic people like me, like myself, to go on the streets and be politic about it, you know. Uh, so I don't know what what will happen. Maybe my music will will be will go more political uh, after this, but I don't know. Uh, but the thing is that people are more open to anything, and and people are getting united, whether they are Turkish, whether whether they are Kurdish, whether they are Armenian, or whatever they believe, or whatever they are, they united with this thing. Music from Turkey's Baduk ends our program today. For more on the protests in Turkey, come by theworld.org. 
That's where you'll find a slideshow of political cartoons by Turkish cartoonists. Check out how they're responding to the drama in their own backyard. That's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International